Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here again on another Sunday. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. This is where we started our time together uh, last week, started a bit of a mini-series here together um, from 2 Peter chapter 1 on the nature of progressive sanctification, how to go about getting your sanctification, the process of your spiritual growth, unstuck, right? We talked about how that that was certainly the right theological term for this. We mentioned that last week. Uh, Unstuck is the word we're all looking for. How do we make progress in our spiritual life? Because so oftentimes it can feel like we take two steps forward, one step back, or on really bad days, like we're taking one step forward and two steps back, which is not the way you want things to be. So how is it that we can go about motivating our the process of our spiritual growth in order to grow? And last time we were together, we looked at kind of the divine side of what God does in enabling our spiritual growth. And today we're going to jump back into this text and kind of turn a little bit of a corner away from what God is doing in enabling our growth to seeing what we are to be doing in the pursuit of our own growth. So I hope that this will be a productive time for us all together. I know that it's been very helpful to me this week as I've continued studying through this text. But here in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter really is giving us a a blueprint of sorts. He's giving us essentially a a step-by-step construction kit where he's going to be telling us exactly what we need to do now in order to maintain and resume our spiritual growth. You see, you cannot grow very well. You can't build very well if you don't have the necessary raw materials that you need in order to build. The same thing is true in spiritual growth. You're you're not going to grow very much if you do not understand and do not have the right things supplied to the process of that growth. Now, those of you who have been to my house at some point in the past, this will resonate with the men in particular, uh, will understand that the very best thing about my house is that you can see Lowe's from my backyard, okay? I do a lot of home improvement kind of self, you know, weekend warriors kind of stuff at my house. And the thing that I really love about my place is that I stand, as I stand at my grill in my backyard, I can see the Lowe's sign hanging right there in front of my very vision, which may sound like a great thing, until it actually comes time to do your home improvement project. Because then I find myself at Lowe's very, very, very often. Now, I have found that if I stand there on a Saturday morning with my cup of coffee, looking at whatever the project is before me, and I think all the way through the whole project and think to myself, what will I need today? And then I go to Lowe's, I end up only going mm, three times, if I think ahead. If I do not think ahead and I grab my cup of coffee and I take it with me to Lowe's, throughout the course of that day, I will go 10 times because it's right there in my line of sight. The problem with my projects are oftentimes that I'm not very well supplied. Now, Lowe's has everything you could possibly need. And there may be some Home Depot fans here today who are saying, that's not true. You need to go to Home Depot. But everything that I usually need for my home improvement projects, minus two rentals, because that's Home Depot, everything I need is there at Lowe's. It's this giant warehouse full of every supply I could possibly ever need for all of my projects. Lowe's is well-stocked. Lowe's is well-supplied. My garage is not so much, right? It's usually a big mess. There's stuff laying around all over the place. The point here is this. If you don't have the right supplies available on hand, you're going to end up wasting half of your day, which is what I usually do on Saturdays. Peter here is saying to us, when you show up at the spiritual construction site, make sure you come ready with the necessary materials. That's what he's going to be telling us here today. And last week, we started with 
uh, the, really the, the materials that God provides us already. They're the, the built-in materials. And we saw that in verse 2 where he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that verb multiply was really the verb that governed the whole section in verses 2 through 4. That this is a work that God does as he multiplies the grace, the peace, the knowledge that we need in order to grow. Whereas God is responsible to grow our grace, peace, and knowledge, Peter here today is going to turn a corner and say, yes, that is true. God does provide all of those things. He, he does do that multiplication work, but you are also responsible to supply the necessary effort. You can't get going on the doing until you first comprehended the knowing, which is the point of verses 2 through 4. And that was the point of that verb multiply last week, where God just naturally does this in your life. But here, as we progress through this text in verses 5 through 7, Peter shifts gears from knowing to doing, and he gives a new key word to us. And that key word is found right there in verse 5. And it really is a word that ought to be contrasted with Multiply in verse 2, that's what God does. Here in verse 5, we're told that whereas God multiplies, we are responsible to supply. And he gives us a whole long list of things that we are supposed to supply. Now, that word supply, it's a word that means to give, to provide, to add something. And in the original language, back in the ancient world, it was often used to talk about building something and supplying the construction workers very, very well. That word supply, it means to give lavishly or generously every single resource that could possibly be necessary for the day's work. In this context, it could often be used of describing the outfitting of an army, right, which the Romans knew how to do very well. Every single thing a soldier could possibly need, it was the government's job to supply all of those resources for the work that was before those particular troops. This is the word that Peter is using here as he shifts his attention off of what God does onto what we are now to do as well. And that's the focus of our time together here today. Now, I don't want you to forget or lose sight of the fact that even though we're talking about our place in sanctification and our effort and what it is we are responsible to provide, there's also good news involved as well. Because Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply, it's the exact same word, will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, he provides the power, he provides the provision, he provides the person, he provides the promises, he provides his own purposes in our sanctification. We looked at all of that last week. So he's already provided us with the means that we need, the motivation that we need to do this work. But the fact remains that there is still work to be done. And Peter here says, you must now supply the necessary efforts to be increasing in your own growth. God is ready and in fact already has done what is necessary to multiply your spiritual growth. But you must now do the work of supplying the necessary resources. And so the point of these verses 5 through 7 here today is very simply this. In order for your sanctification to progress, you must supply the necessary effort. Spiritual growth does not just happen to you. It happens as you take advantage of the resources that God has given to you, but you must do that work. And, and here in verses 5 through 7, as we go through this text today, we're going to see four steps to supplying the necessary effort because Peter makes them very, very clear. Let me just read this text for us. I'm going to back up to verse 2, and I'll read all the way down through verse 7 so we can get a sense of what it is we're talking about here together today. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, 
For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, today, don't miss this point. We're going to be focusing on the part that we have to play and the pieces that we must supply. But I don't want you to miss this. The fact that we're focusing on that half today is not intended to distract us from the reality that God does play a critical foundational role in our sanctification. And we spent the entirety of our message last week together focusing on that. Okay, So don't forget about the part that God plays because it is true that grace always precedes the demand that's given to us in Scripture. If you just start here with the demand and you ignore the part about grace, the part about God's peace in this process, you will get nowhere. So if all you do is take today's message and divorce it from everything last week, you will not be making sufficient progress in your spiritual growth because you cannot do this on your own. Okay? You cannot bootstrap your way up through the process of spiritual growth. And that's the reason why Peter connects verses 5 through 7 back up to verses 2 through 4. It's a package unit, okay? So the fact that we're focusing here on verses 5 through 7, I don't want you to lose sight of the realities of what's going on in verses 2 through 4 because they're critically important, okay? Just because the grace is there doesn't mean that you get to coast, but you also can't afford to ignore the demand that's there because grace requires it, okay? So let's go through the necessary steps here to supplying the necessary effort. What are they? Well, first, Peter's going to tell us here in verse 5 that we have to start with the proper motivation for growth, Okay? You see, motivation is extremely important when it comes to any kind of task whatsoever. On those Saturday mornings when I have a big project in front of me and I need to get out of bed, what is the thing that causes me to get up and get to work and go to Lowe's? It's the very fact that I know I need to get this done. And if I don't do it, certainly no one else is going to, Right? That's the motivation that gets me going. It, it is the thing that pushes me to get the job done. And Peter here, as he turns his attention off of what God is doing onto what we must do, he starts out by reminding us very clearly to not forget what the right motivation is. You see, motivation, the right motivation, it's the key that unlocks the door to spiritual growth. And until you get that key, you're going to be pounding your head on a locked door if you don't have the right motivation to get started. And that's the reason why there in verse 5, he starts out by saying this. Now, for this very reason, do. Okay? Now, what's he, what, what he's doing there, in, in the original language, it's actually really interesting. You know, when you take a piece of paper and you take a highlighter and you really want to make certain that you don't miss something, you highlight it once you highlight it again, you highlight it a third or a fourth time, maybe, and the paper at that point begins to disintegrate and you actually lose sight of what it was you were trying to highlight because you did it too many times, okay? That's kind of what he's doing here. If I had access to the original manuscript that Peter produced, I'm going to guess that the highlighter basically wore a hole in that part of the paper, okay? Because what Peter does here, it's very, very interesting in the way he says this. He piles two conjunctions on top of two pronouns here as he starts out verse 5. He says, now, for this very reason also, um, so in, in the grammar built in here, there's kind of this, this really tight start-stop sort of a construction where he's saying, you, 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 and he's not quite sure how to say it or how to highlight it, but he wants to make sure we don't miss this. He's saying there's a tight connection here between what God is doing and what you're doing, and you try as hard as you might, cannot pull those two pieces apart. 
You see, the motivation for growing spiritually, the motivation for all the doing that he's about to give us is tied back completely up into what is going on in the verses prior. He says, don't miss this connection. The doing, it's, it's all tied back up into everything he just said. He says, now, for this very reason, also, and he's pointing back up to verses 2 through 4. So, in order for us to get the understanding of the proper motivation for growth, we have to just very briefly recap and review the material that we covered last week, because Peter is pointing us with this giant highlighter to go back and look at those verses before we keep moving through the following verses. He says, for this very reason also. Well, what reason? What's he talking about? Well, immediately up above in verse 4, if you trace this back up, he's talking about the purposes of God. He's saying the reason is so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. And then he says, and what's, what's the reason behind the purposes of God? Well, it's the promises of God, where he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Well, what's the reason behind the promises of God? It is the person of God. He says he has called us by his own glory and excellence. I'm, see, I'm tracing our way backwards through this text to get down to the root of what Peter is talking about here. He says it's the person of God, his own glory, his own excellence. Well, what is it that stands behind the person of God? It's the provision of God. Back in verse 3, he says he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Well, what is it that stands behind the provision of God? Well, you go back to the beginning of verse 3, and what you find is the very root foundation. It is his divine power. Okay? That, folks, is the motivation for your spiritual growth. It is the purposes of God that were given by his promises through his person, the provision available in all of that, and all of it was made possible by his own divine power that we saw last week. And Peter says, now, that's the very reason that you are to apply yourself and supply the necessary pieces to spiritual growth. He's saying this is the motivation. Your efforts must start by being rooted directly into the power of God. Because without the right motivation, without an awareness of his power, his provision, his purpose, his promises, all of the things that he has done, you're going to end up staying in your spiritual bed all day and you won't have any hope whatsoever of supplying yourself with the necessary steps for growth. So what's the push that gets you up and at it? It is his power. It's an awareness of the fact that he has already done the work necessary for you to grow into his own likeness. And without that motivation, you cannot hope to muster the diligence that you will need. With that motivation, you cannot help but be diligent. You see, that motivation is the key. The key here is your awareness of the work that God has already done. You must start with the proper motivation. And that motivation is all over verses 2 through 4, okay? Once you have it, though, once you grasp that motivation, you say, okay, I get that. Now what, Peter, tell us? Well, the good news is he does, and this is the next step. Start with the proper motivation, and now he tells us that we must exercise the proper mode of growth as well. He keeps going in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence... The mode for your growth, the way by which you must pursue it, is by applying all diligence. Now, that word in English, applying, it's a little bit hard for us to really get the force behind what he's talking about there. When I think of applying, because my, one of my primary jobs is working at a seminary, I think of like a college application or a seminary application where I'm going to go and apply for permission to attend somewhere. That is not at all what Peter's talking about here when he says to apply yourself. The idea that he's talking about and the word that he used means to exert extreme force. It means to really put your back into something. It means to do your best, try your hardest to make every effort. 
He's essentially saying there can be no excuses in your efforts. You must apply yourself. You must exert yourself. It's a, it's a focused attention that is meant to ensure success, where you bring all of your energies, all of your skills, all of your faculties, all of your resources to bear on the doing of your job. That's what he's talking about here. Now, a couple weeks ago, there was a national championship football game on television. I don't know if any of you happened to watch that game. But one of the most interesting moments in that game, I think it was maybe halfway through the first quarter, where there was an opportunity for the team that ultimately won the game by a huge margin to begin pulling ahead and really break this game wide open. And at one point, the cameraman shows the coach on the sidelines And I don't know if they meant to capture this or not, but the coach wheels and turns and points at one of his subordinates, and he says, do your job. Whoa. I mean, talk about getting called out on national TV, right? I don't know what kind of motivation you need, but that would pretty much do it for me. This coach was not happy because he felt like his employee could do more than he was doing, and he could give more, and he could apply himself more diligently. And so he turns on him and says, do your job. That is what Peter is saying here. Apply yourself. Do your job. Leave everything all out on the field, and don't hold any part of it back. Exert extreme force to get this done. Do your job. He says, apply all diligence. And I love this because he doesn't say apply some of your diligence. Give us some of your efforts, maybe a little bit of extreme force. He says, apply all diligence, everything you have, use it. And I think that's the sense behind what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here it is, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for ultimately it is God who is at work in you. Do you see that juxtaposition there again, that God is the one who is working in you, but Paul's command is to work out your salvation? It's both. God is doing this work, but you must also work at it very strenuously as well. That word diligence, it's a word that means to make haste with great enthusiasm, with a sense of eagerness where you are essentially hurrying up to get the work done. That same word is used over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul commands Timothy, make haste to come to me because I'm about to die. Get here, run to the work, get it done. That's what he's talking about. That's the sense behind this idea of diligence. He's saying, exert yourself with extreme force to run enthusiastically to the work that is before you. If we can interpret what he's saying. Causes me to think of the seven dwarves in Disney's Snow White, right? Whistle while you work. Get down to it. Those dwarves, they're they're eager to go and, and get down into that hole in the ground and do their mining work. These mechanical little fiends, right? Chink, chink, chink. Hi ho, hi ho. I mean, they just do it all day long every day, and they're happy to go do it. Get down to work and apply yourself. That may be the first time I've ever sung in a sermon. (laughs) Mark it down, because it's not likely to happen again soon. Peter's saying here, run to the work of your spiritual construction. If you have the power available, which by the way, he says in verse 2, 3, and 4, you do, what's stopping you from getting down to it? What's he saying here? Do everything in your power to run to the work of spiritual growth. High gear is the mode that you need to be in. If this is the motivation, the power of God, and the mode is applying yourself with diligence, if that word diligence, which by the way, we're going to see in a little bit, that phrase all diligence, it actually governs the way by which you apply yourself in all of the seven steps that we're about to look through. They're all to be done with the application of diligence. If that's the right motivation and the right mode, then what are the means that we need in order to apply ourselves diligently? Well, this is the third aspect, the third step to accelerating your spiritual growth is that you must not just begin with the right motivation and exercise the proper mode, but you must now depend upon the proper means. That's what he says here. Look, 
Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. Okay? It's a very, very important point of explanation. He doesn't just say, with all diligence, supply these things. He says, with all diligence, in your faith. Very critical importance. It is your faith that is the means by which these things are able to be accomplished. The faith is the foundation for all of the work. The means for all of this stuff actually happening comes out of your faith in the provision, the power, the person, the promises of God. You see, here's the reality. True faith actually works. You see, faith is not one of the virtues here listed in this passage. It is the ground out of which all the virtues that he's about to talk about end up growing. There's this tight relationship, and this is seen throughout all the New Testament, a tight relationship between faith and the works that follow faith. And that order is very, very important. And so is the connection between the two concepts. Because works cannot precede faith, but faith can also not be separated from works. Once you have faith, the works always follow. And I think the Apostle James makes a much better point of this than I could ever hope to. So turn with me over to the book of James, just a couple books back. James chapter 2, verses 14, and I'll just read a little bit here to you because he explains it very clearly what I'm saying, that, that you cannot hope to get down to the working of your sanctification until you've first gotten the faithing of it right. That's not a word. We just made that up, but it, it's the point. Faithing. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What's he saying? What is it that distinguishes the reality of your faith and proves that it is real versus the faith of the demons? It's the reality that your faith gets down to business and actually makes progress. That's the difference. He says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now what he's saying there, he's not, he's not arguing for salvation by works. What he's saying is salvation is by faith, but that faith must necessarily result in the accompanying works that go with it, because if there are no works, it proves that that faith isn't real to begin with. He says, you see that faith was, and here, here's his explanation, faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, his faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, there's his faith, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Skip down to verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now again, James is not arguing for a works-based method of salvation there. What he is talking about is that it is very essential that your faith precede your works so that your works can validate your faith. You see, the works always come after the faith. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, 16. It is by your deeds that they will know that you are mine. Here's Peter's point in this text. The supplying that Peter is calling for, it is rooted in your faith. You cannot get down to the working out of your salvation with fear and trembling until you first grasp the importance of all of that coming out of a strong faith in the providing power work of God. Without faith in the power of God, you're still dead and you can't do anything right. Faith in what here? What's he talking about? It's faith in the power of God to enable your spiritual life. New life brings about what? It brings about results that are in keeping with your faith. What are those results? Well, 
What are the actions that flow from true faith? What is it that we are to supply in our faith with all diligence for the reasons that have already been given? Well, here's where Peter now really gets down to it. But I want to remind us, it's only after you understand the proper motivation, the proper mode, and the proper means rooted in faith that we can get around here to the fourth step in spiritual growth. It's the manner of growth. Okay? Pursue the proper manner of growth. And this is where Peter really gets practical for us here this morning. In verse 5, he's going to start the list. In your faith, supply the following pieces. And he really kind of here gives us building blocks that stack one on top of the next on top of the next. Now, a lot of commentators like to think that this is just a random list that Peter is saying, like the spiritual gifts, all these things go together. But that's not what he's doing there. And we know that because he keeps repeating the things and, and he essentially builds it like, a, like links in a chain where one comes out of the next, which comes out of the next, which comes out of the next. This is not a random list given in a random order. It's a very intentional list given in a very intentional order. They're almost like stairs that precede one another, okay? You, you can't continue to take the necessary steps up the ladder until you've taken the step before. If you try to skip a step, you end up falling on your face. It doesn't work so well. So it's very important that we go through this list and we try to break apart the links and find out why is this piece linked to that piece so that we'll be able to take the steps we need to take. Okay, now as we go through kind of this chain or this staircase or these building blocks, however you want to think about it, um, don't forget that every one of them is governed by the phrase up above, diligent effort. Okay, so he's going to say here, Applying all diligence supply moral excellence. Applying all diligence supply knowledge. Applying all diligence supply self-control. Okay? So it's not as though you just need to be diligent in supplying moral excellence and everything else happens. No. It's that you have to apply diligence at every single point. With every single step, you have to apply the diligence and you have to supply these things. Being rooted in your faith that is resting upon the motivation of God's power itself. Okay, so just kind of a preliminary preamble before we go through each of these building blocks one at a time. Okay, building block number one, he gives us, he calls it moral excellence. And this is just a word that means to be virtuous or to be good. It's the demonstration of Christian virtue in the course of living. He's saying here, as you go about living, as you go through your life, you are to diligently, remember, running to that work, supply everything necessary to live in a way that is morally pure, that is morally upright and noble. In short, it means... To, to live in a way that is good in the sight of God. You say, okay, well, how do we know what God's standard of moral excellence, His excellent goodness, really looks like? Well, where have we seen this concept before? And I refer you back to our time together last week. Look back up at verse 3. He says that everything you need comes to the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and what? What's it say? Excellence. That's exactly the same word that Peter uses here for our behavior. The very same thing that was demonstrated in your salvation in the person of Jesus Christ Himself, you now are to exert yourself in becoming. You are, in short, to become exactly like your Savior. The same glory, the same excellence that, that's referred to in verse 3 is now applied here to us in verse 5. You are to be excellent just as He is excellent. You could put it this way. You are to be holy just as I, the Lord, am holy. We see that command elsewhere in Scripture, right? The very thing that enabled your new life, which was the excellent goodness, the purity, the virtue of God, is now commanded to be displayed here in us. It's the idea of imitating in our lives what we have already seen to be true in His. If imitation is the highest kind of a compliment, then who must we Im imitate but God Himself? You see, what you see in God, the goodness that brings His power to you, 
the virtue that causes him to be who he is, you must also imitate that same kind of lifestyle as you go about your daily life. Philippians 4.8 talks about this virtue this way. Finally, brethren, he, and Paul really expands it out, which Paul frequently does. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, And then he encapsulates all of those descriptions by saying, if there is any excellence, all of those things, that way of thinking, that way of living like God, if anything is worthy of praise, those are the things that you are now to dwell on. See, the pattern of your life is to be consistent with the pattern that was established by Christ. We say, okay, I understand that, that I am to imitate his likeness and his moral excellence and his great virtue in the way that I live and seek to be virtuous and noble and good and holy myself. But how do I do that? And that is the reason why Peter's list continues to go. He could have just stopped there and said, be virtuous, be excellent, be be morally pure. But he doesn't, you see. He tells us how to do that in the very next word that he gives to us. It's the reason why he says there in verse 5, and in your moral excellence, add knowledge, because it's the knowledge that enables you to become morally excellent. This is the second building block, knowledge. It's a word that's used five times here in this passage, where it's the knowledge of Christ that provides us the power of God that allows his grace and peace to be multiplied to us. But it is also the knowledge of Christ that enables our moral goodness as well. You see, sanctification begins to speed up and progress when you begin to know and understand who he is. When you begin to see the truth of the nature of Christ on display in the pages of Scripture, that is where your growth finds its ultimate source. If you say, what does the moral purity look like? You must know Christ. How do I get that moral purity? You must know Christ. You see, it's the knowledge of Christ that enables this kind of excellence to grow within your life. This is the reason why, back up in verse 2, the multiplication of grace and peace comes through what? The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 4, 12 through 15 says this, that the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, which is that of a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, He says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into the knowledge of him who is the head, even Christ. How do you become a mature man? How do you grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ? It's through your knowledge of him. And here in this text, we're being told that this is a progressive kind of knowledge, uh, that you can grow in your knowledge of him as you expose yourself to him. This is the truth about God, this knowledge. This knowledge is the truth about his ways. It is the truth about his will. It is the truth about the Savior that he sent for us. And it is all that truth about all those things that is here properly understood and applied. You see, knowledge is the beginning of fearing God. And fearing God is the thing we're told in Proverbs that brings about wisdom. And when you have wisdom based upon your knowledge of who He is, there are things in your life that will soon begin to shift. And that brings us to the very next word here in Peter's list. Because when you know and fear God... What happens next? Well, self-control is added, you see. You think to yourself, the greatest hurdle to my sanctification is just my simple lack of control over myself. You don't understand. I can't seem to just get myself together. I can't get myself under control. That's not actually your issue. Your issue is that you're not looking to see Christ and knowing Him in His fullness because if you saw Him in His fullness, you would be so overawed by His greatness and His excellence that you would want to be like Him as well. And the result of that knowledge happening is that all of a sudden, 
you now find rooted in him through your faith the ability to control yourself. When you begin to grow in your knowledge of God, your fear and your awe of him grows to the same degree. To the degree that you know God is the, is the degree that you fear him. When you start to see the greatness of who he is, you start to love him. And when you start to love him, suddenly you find that you do have control over yourself to obey him rather than your own desires that are driven by your lusts. Self-control, Peter tells us, is the natural fruit of knowing Christ. It's a word that means to hold oneself in, to, to have power over yourself. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 9.27, where Paul says, I discipline my body. I have self-control over myself, and I make myself my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. You see, the moral excellence comes from knowledge, and it's the knowledge that produces the self-control that we need in order to kill our sin. Well, what's then the next link in the chain? What's the result of a consistent life of self-control? Peter brings us here to a fourth building block, and he calls it perseverance. He says, in your self-control supply perseverance. You see, this perseverance, it's the result of a consistent life of self-control. If, if self-control that flows out of knowledge based upon a desire for moral purity like Christ, rooted in your faith, if, if that self-control becomes a pattern, it eventually begins to harden into a life of perseverance. This perseverance he's talking about, it's a, it's a very uncommon word. It, it's a word that means to be strong in the face of very unwelcome difficulty. It doesn't just mean to endure. It means to endure while looking ahead to that which is coming next. It's often a word that's used to describe the perfect soldier who does exactly his duty in the heat of battle. It's not a wilting kind of a flower. It, it's a word that means to endure. It's a, it's a person that has sticking power, that has grit, that is determined, that consistently sets one's face into the winds of life. And that's exactly what James chapter 1 tells us the mature believer is to be. It says there, Know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see the progression? How that knowledge of Christ results in self-control, and that a life that is patterned on one of self-control, that, that consistently seeks to walk with Christ, what's the result of that? It's a life of perseverance that is able to withstand not only temptation, but trial as well. And the result is your perfection, we're told in the book of James. So what's that kind of endurance called? Over time, perseverance in patterns of moral excellence and self-control motivated by the knowledge, fear, and love for God. Well, Peter tells us all of that comes together and it results in building block number five, a life of godliness, he says. In your perseverance, supply godliness. And this is kind of the idea of a a piece of furniture that has a hundred coats of glossy finish, right? Where the endurance and the steadfastness that builds up layer upon layer upon layer as moral excellence is piled on top of knowledge and knowledge is piled upon top of further moral excellence, it results in a life, a life that is downright godly. It results all these things being put together time after time after time in a pattern of consistent life, it, it results in a life that begins to look like the life that God has placed within us. And that's the point of verse 4, is it not? I refer you back up there. He says, the point of all these promises of, about your spiritual growth is so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. And here Peter says, you see, a life of perseverance ends up resulting in godliness where you look now like him. This word, it, it, it has a sense of piety. It, it's a life that is lived in a, a state of constant worship. And we ask ourselves the question, well, well, what's happening here? What's happening here is that we're being given the pathway to the fulfillment of Romans 12.1. You say, well, what does Romans 12.1 say? 
Romans 12, 1, it's a very famous verse, says very simply, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may prove what the will of God is. That, oh, by the way, which is good and acceptable and perfect. That which is morally excellent. And I've often wondered to myself, how is it possible to be able to say that here I am ready to present my body as a living sacrifice to God, my spiritual service of worship? How can I get to the place where my life is so godly that I feel comfortable offering it to Him? Well, this is the pathway. It's rooted in the knowledge of Christ being motivated by the very power of God Himself, resulting in a life of self-control so that we do not have to continue giving in to our flesh, which results in a life of perseverance, which ultimately ends up resulting, we're told here, in a life of godliness. Well... Peter's not done. Your brain may be tired, but Peter isn't finished. What's the result of a life of godliness? The chain progression continues here. He says, in your godliness, supply diligently, now, brotherly kindness. See, the point here is that when you adore God, and when you live a life of worship before Him, when you begin to look like Him, when you understand Him in true knowledge for who He is, it causes you to naturally have concern for those who are around you, just as He has concern for those whom He has created. You see, God does not need us to worship Him. He does not need to save us, necessarily, and yet He has. He cares about us, even though we did nothing to deserve that level of care from Him. And yet He still has this sense of care and concern for us. In the life of a believer whose life is beginning to look like that of God, there will be a similar kind of care to those who are around us. See, just as God has cared for us when we did not deserve it, if our lives are looking like His, then we now begin to care for those of us or for those who are around us as well. And that's the natural fruit of a life of godliness, is that there is a kindness, a, a good scent that comes off of our life where we care truly for those who are around us. And, and this is what Jesus says over in John chapter 13. He says, by this love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love for, if you care for one another. A life that is devoted to caring for those around it, then, Peter says, it ultimately deepens to the point where it is a life that culminates not just in being kind and caring, but in a life that is ultimately filled with the love of God, both in relationship to Him and from Him to others. And this is the final link in the chain. You see, spiritual growth, it ultimately culminates in a lifestyle of love for everyone, both for God and for those around us. Without love, you can neither experience God nor can you grow in Him Love for others is always connected to love for Him. And it's the reason why Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You see, ultimately, the great joy in Christian living, the joy in spiritual growth, is the growth that you attain in your love for the Lord who saved you and allowed you to embark upon this journey in the first place. And in that way, this whole list comes back full circle and by ending with this concept of love, we're given the very fuel that we need to go back to the beginning and reapply ourselves to the moral excellence that is demanded of us. See, this love in turn, it's the very thing that refuels the believer's commitment to be killing sin and to resume efforts in applying this moral excellence. And the whole cycle begins to repeat over and over and over again. It's as though Peter has built this great chain of events out before us and he takes the last link, love, and he reconnects it back to the first one, the supplying of moral excellence. You see, that's the way you fuel your spiritual growth. 
See, Peter is saying here, in order for your sanctification to be progressing, you have to supply the necessary effort in these areas. And as you work at one, it will result in the next. And as you work in the next, it will result in the next until you get to the end of the process and it causes you to say, I've got to go back and start over and redouble my efforts back here. And that is how growth begins to take place. So, we come back to our original question. How do we get unstuck? We get unstuck by recognizing the very power of God that has been made available to us, that enables us to pursue the efforts necessary for that growth to take place. And when it comes to our own efforts, here are the things we must do. We must start with the proper motivation, exercise the proper mode, depend upon the proper means, pursue the proper manner of growth. What's the result of all that? We're going to look more at this next week as we kind of wrap up this passage together. But let me just read you as we conclude the results of what this kind of life looks like. Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. I don't know about you, but that's really encouraging to me to know that all this effort is not in vain. It will come to the place where someday I will look back over all of that strenuous exertion and I will be saying to myself, boy, am I glad that I wasn't blind because it has enabled me to step confidently into the presence of the eternal kingdom of my Lord and Savior. And I hope that's encouraging to you as well. We'll get more into that next time around. Okay? Father God, we do thank you for your word and for the way in which it does so dramatically impact our lives. It is in every way everything that we need for a, a lifestyle of godliness. This passage has taught us that. And so we pray that we would diligently be applying ourselves to supply all that is required of us. And may we do that with the knowledge that you have already gone before us and supplied our every need in the person of Christ. So may we link our efforts to his name. May we link our, our desires to the goodness and the greatness of who he is. And may he in every way cause us to be growing in our walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.